0: Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the panel. First up, it's commentator Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Uh, according to the RMT, the 800 PO workers that were fired en masse last week have now been replaced by agency workers being paid less than £2 an hour. Now, a rival operator is warning it might have have to do the same thing if the government doesn't intervene. Um, why have p done this? Why is uh, another company threatening to do this?
1: Well, the short and ugly answer is because they can because the government let them. Um, There's a loophole in the law. It has not been closed, despite repeated assurances. To add a little bit of uh, context, P&O were bought in 2019 by DP World, which is a shipping giant primarily owned by the United Arab Emirates government. Uh, and th- the reason I'm saying this is that this is not a struggling company, okay? Mm. Um, so last year, the company's revenue soared by more than a fifth to 3.7 billion, and their pre tax profits rose by nearly 300 million. Um, so even though we think of PNO as, you know, ferries, cruises, and things like that across the channel, actually the bulk of their business is containers. And that has right. been very, very high. And prices have been sky high as well. So they've they've done very, very well out of the last few so years. So there's really
0: there's no sort of is it just greed? <laughs> Let's yeah, be. Blunt. It, is. Yeah. it is.
1: They're just they literally um, saw this, they saw a chance to increase their bottom line and they're doing it because they can. Now, Quasi Kwarteng says that the mass redundancy without
0: prior notification to the British government is illegal and p and could face unlimited fines. But one maritime lawyer has come out and said that it is, in fact, legal thanks to Chris Bloody Grayling, um, a 2018 <laughs> amendment to the Trade Union and Labour Relations Consolidation Act of 1992. Uh, exempted ships registered overseas from having to inform the Secretary of State in advance and p and is registered in Cyprus. Um, does this stand up? Uh, is failing Grayling... Uh, to blame for the fact that they didn't have to notify the government?
1: I mean, I think Johnson in uh, in PMQs today said that uh, they think it is unlawful, Mm. that they have fallen foul of the notification process, um, which basically uh, says they have to inform the insolvency service, not the Secretary of State, um, if they plan to make more than 20 staff redundant. Uh, Thirty days before the first dismissal, and if it 's a hundred or more it 's forty five days so that so 's that's separate yep. informing the soldiers, yeah informing yeah, yeah. Say, right yeah. so I think they may have fallen foul of the notification regime. The practice, however, is lawful um, because you know this was not a se- this is not a secret. this is something that 's been going on for a very long time the Prime Minister actually pledged an employment bill after Brexit that would protect and enhance workers' rights, making specific reference to this sort of loophole. Yet we're still waiting for that bill, and it's not even confirmed as being in the next Queen's speech. Right. In January 2021, an, opposi- an opposition motion asked the government to at least set a timetable for closing this specific loophole they refused. And in October 2021, you might remember, the opposition tried to pass a bill that would close this, and junior business minister at the time Paul Scully actually filibustered the bill. And so is that why therefore these PNO workers have lost their job? I mean, they may have lost their jobs anyway. The company may have made a determination that they're better off giving them proper notification, giving them proper redundancy package and hiring temporary workers. So that may have happened anyway. But not like this. But not like this. And the issue on whether a company can employ foreign workers at below minimum wage is another loophole that the government can and should have
0: closed and hasn't. Roz Taylor is editor at the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz.
2: Hello, Dorian.
0: Uh, Nazanin sagari Ratcliffe is free, but the meat-faced trolls of England deem her insufficiently grateful. Uh, As Marina Hyde puts it, a woman who hasn't said a word for six years is apparently talking too much. (laughs) (laughs) What is this obsession uh, with gratitude?
2: Well, I think it's partly about the sort of complaining woman, nag, which meme, which kind of informs a lot of public discourse about this. And in this, I mean, if a the woman criticises from a position of weakness, when a man criticises, it sounds robust. When a woman does it, it sounds petulant and moany. And the reason for that, it comes from the expectation that male complaints are acted upon. But female ones are just annoying because they don't bring about change. So I, I think it comes from that. It's extremely sad. Well,
0: not also um, race. Because uh, as Marina points out in her piece, you know, when people like Stormzy and Afua Hirsch have made criticisms of Britain, um, the Daily Mail has said, where's the gratitude implying that, you know, unless you can trace your uh, ancestry back to the doomsday book, (laughs) you should be sort of pathetically grateful for for to be in Britain and for everything that Britain does.
2: Yeah, there's definitely that going on as well. I mean, you know, the fact that uh, she chose to go to Iran and put herself in this position is, uh, as, as they see it, is probably uh, a reason to have less, much less sympathy for her.
0: But she's right, though, that this has been a, a sort of failure.
2: Oh, it's been a colossal failure. I'm surprised she didn't name Johnson individually because she should have done. He was, of course, one of the five foreign secretaries who have failed to get her released. And indeed, some of his comments made it much less, basically delayed her release. Uh, To to my mind, it was rather kind and uh, sparing of her not to make that point.
0: And fair play to Jeremy Hunt, one of the foreign secretaries who failed to get her out for saying that actually she had every right to say that.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Our guest this week is a political economist and professor at Goldsmiths University of London. He's also the author of books including The Happiness Industry and is the co-author of Unprecedented? How COVID-19 Revealed the Politics of Our Economy. Will Davis, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Will, tell us about Unprecedented and its cheeky question mark.
3: Well, the book, which is a fairly rapid response, particularly in academic terms, where very often with, with academic books, uh, things move at a kind of glacial pace compared to the rest of the world of publishing, let alone the world of, of, of op-eds and comment. But some colleagues and I uh, felt that we were clearly living through something that had never happened before. We'd never had these these lockdowns of the past two years before. Uh, And there'd also never been um, the types of um, state intervention, uh, not just in our day-to-day freedoms, but also in things like financial markets on the scale that was uh, introduced. And we wanted to get to grips with not only trying to map precisely what had unfolded, focusing particularly on the UK and to try to collect evidence as it was emerging about who was benefiting, who was suffering, what sorts of people were going back to work, what sorts of people were going into furlough, um, what were the effects of homeschooling and, and where were these profits being creamed off? Lots of things that have been discussed. But we also wanted to treat these events as a moment to Uh, shine a torch into some of the kind of deeper political economic corners of how uh, capitalism functions. But the reason it's unprecedented question mark, rather than just unprecedented, which was a term that Rishi Sunak used a lot in the early stages of the pandemic to describe what he was doing in order to protect workers and keep the economy going. But the reason there's a question mark there is that really, as we began to probe more and more into these events, uh, increasingly we found that much of what policy was doing was uh, ramping up and and sometimes sort of amplifying and radicalising things that had actually been introduced um, in the fallout of the global financial crisis of 2008. Obviously quantitative easing, but also the sort of um, reliance on the kind of um, capacity of care workers, teachers, frontline social workers and public sector workers to kind of enable British society to be sustained on the basis of goodwill, unpaid overtime, uh, really paying through the sweat of many public sector workers. So part of the the, the thesis is that this was a, a sort of an amplification and an illumination of various things that were already there.
0: And you're uh, an expert on neoliberalism. And in fact, recently when I needed some uh, recommendations for what to to read about it, you sent me a sort of an epic reading list. Um, And on um, a blog, I think there's a kind of like a guide, a reading list that you've posted in the past, where it talks about the theory of sort of zombie neoliberalism after Mm. 2008. So does the kind of degree of state intervention that was required, does that add to the case that neoliberalism isn't over, but it is in this kind of zombie state?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think so. So 2008 was obviously a turning point for neoliberalism. um, And what 2008 demonstrated uh, very, very graphically for about a year or so, uh, I'm talking about the the collapse of the banks, the Lehman Brothers, RBS and so on, um, and then the bailouts and then the kind of exceptional interventions that were made was that really private sector, the private sector and financial markets, there's a limit to how much risk they are able to ever actually carry, that there is always been this kind of implicit underwriting by the state of these institutions that during the kind of golden era of neoliberalism of the, the 1990s, really, there was this notion that states really didn't have very much to do any longer in the economy because financial markets uh, had become these kind of perfect calculators. And clearly, uh, what happened with, with the bailouts of the banks in and eight nine was a demonstration that really the state in its kind of classically modern form dating back to the 17th century is really what uh, underwrites and underpins uh, the distribution of risk in in, in modern capitalism now uh, that lesson had already been learned and it meant that Particularly, central banks and treasuries, when the coronavirus pandemic hit, were able to draw on a set of techniques that had already been used extensively over previous years. Um, But I think also, you know, one thing which was became very um, manifest over the course of the pandemic, which had not been studied that much, funnily enough, political economists sort of aware of it, but they hadn't paid that much attention to it, is the extent to which. The state, as we as as we imagine it, has been increasingly sort of preyed upon and gutted in certain ways by um, this extensive. Public sector outsourcing industry that, um, and this became a sort of matter of scandal over the course of the, the pandemic, as it became clear that this, you know, so-called VIP lane for the handing out of mm. COVID contracts, people, many people, I mean, certainly liberal observers and, and, and leftist observers were were sort of horrified to discover quite what scale of profits were available to companies mm. that sort of hovered around the the, the state. Uh, promising to solve all sorts of different problems that many of which, many of them had never actually thought about those problems before, but they existed wholly to hoover up contracts. And this has been going on um, extensively since the 1990s. And I think although anyone who's looked remotely at particularly things like the world of, of social care and local government and particularly areas of low wage uh, service work in, in, in the what was once conventionally the public sector, but has now become the private sector, really, um, there are huge profits to be made in these areas, really on the backs of clamping down on wages of people on the front line of of, of care work and relatively... sort of disempowered areas of the of the labor market and and that i think you know again that probably was was not something that was was so publicly visible over the previous 10 years the, there's a whole other story which i i won't keep going on but it's a whole other story about about the role of the housing market in all of this because of course one of the extraordinary things about the pandemic has been that at a time when you had at one point the gdp had contracted by over 20% in the uk and yet it was accompanied by a, a housing boom. So this was the first recession since 1945 in which net household wealth grew, and that was largely due to uh, the policies and of how they affected uh, the housing market.
0: Thanks. Well, well, this week uh, I saw a, a poll um, asking people whether they attributed the kind of uh, economic difficulties to more to the COVID pandemic or to the war in Ukraine. And as someone pointed out, if someone had shown you a screenshot of that poll <laughs> three years ago. You would have been asking um, what was going on. (laughs) This week on the show, we react to Wednesday's spring statement and Rishi Sunak's attempts to cast himself as the low-tax chancellor while bills rise across the country. And Boris Johnson puts his foot in it over Ukraine. Is comparing the war to Brexit a blunder or a desperate attempt at reviving leave versus remain divisions? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, following the news that a Labour peer was barred from a debate for allegedly falling asleep in the middle of it, We're asking the panel, what's the biggest thing they've
1: ever slept through? But first, a word from Alex. Before we start, a reminder of the next time you can see us live in the flesh and what a lot of flesh we have to offer after two years of lockdown comfort eating. We're at the Leeds City Varieties on Sunday 3rd of April at 2pm a matinee with Dorian, Naomi, Ian and myself. And then on the evening of Wednesday the 8th of June we'll be live at the Old Market Theatre in Hove with Roz, Ian, Dorian and myself. All tickets are on general sale now. Patreon people get a discount on all tickets so search Patreon, Oh God What Now podcast and sign up for VAP access. We'll see you there. First this week,
0: Rishi Sunak has delivered the Treasury's spring statement on the day the Consumer Price Index of Inflation hit 6.2%, the highest in 30 years, even before the invasion of Ukraine. And food banks have reportedly asked for fewer donations of potatoes and other root vegetables because people can't afford the fuel necessary to boil them. Alex what are the top line policies in the statement? I suppose what is sunak hoping will be the top line
1: okay, so there aren't any in in all honesty it's a it's a very pale um spring statement, especially compared to the magnitude of the crisis that's facing the country. Um, I found it very disappointing not not particularly for partisan reasons i I just thought it it struck the wrong note and the wrong scope for what we are actually facing. What do you make um, of
0: this 19%? So there's, like, there's an income tax cut from 20p yeah. to 19p scheduled for 2024. It, it's ridiculous. Right.
1: It, listen, we are, we are currently going through the most volatile uh, period economically and geopolitically, probably for two, three generations The numbers are eye-watering in terms of um, inflation, in terms of a a drop of the standard of living. Um, uh, The the OBR book notes the IFS's analysis that this year we'll see the sharpest drop to disposable income since records began in 1956. For the Chancellor to stand up there in this environment and inform us of his aspiration – to cut income tax by 1p in two and a half years' time, provided everything stays the same, provided all the forecasts hold, which we know will not, because the OBR book doesn't even take into account all the stuff going on in Ukraine yet, all right? So for him to stand up and say, if if with the following wind in two and a half years' time I'll cut, I'll cut income tax by 1p... Is ridiculous. It's a ludicrous response to something going on right now. It's a a wouldn't it be nice kind of policy. It's just a a declaration of his character. That's what he's doing. He's declaring to his backbenchers that, you know, I would love to cut taxes, but I can't. Well, we're going to talk about Brand Rishi uh, later.
0: But as to the policies, national insurance is still going to rise, yeah. but he's raising the threshold by
1: £3,000. Um, how will that balance out? Who does that help? Who does it hurt? The break-even point is round about thirty to thirty-five grand. So uh, ultimately, if you're making less than that, the threshold uplift will balance out the extra money that you will pay in national insurance contributions – over that, you begin to pay more because of the national insurance hike. But even that, I mean, think about that for a moment. If he's got the the fiscal headroom to reduce the basic rate of income tax in two and a half years' time, why doesn't he reduce national insurance contributions instead?
0: Because he doesn't which have is the fiscal a, headroom.
1: <laughs> but, but, that, no, no, but the point is national insurance contribution is a tax on earned income on salaried income. Instead, he's reducing income tax, which will also benefit all those people making income out of rent or share dividends, all of that stuff. So what he's actually doing by keeping national insurance high and reducing income tax is he's opening that gap between the wealth people earn by working and the wealth people earn by not working. Roz, um,
0: He's cut VAT on energy-saving devices such as solar panels, if uh, if you're planning to buy one, but he's also cut fuel duty by 5p a litre. Um, is a cost-of-living crisis, particularly one where there is so much uh, focus on fuel bills, You know, bad news for green taxes?
2: Yes, I mean, it, it shouldn't be because, as you say, the big problem is fuel bills. I mean, I think Miata Van Buller, who's uh, on the Bunker podcast, of course, estimated that the 5p cut on fuel duty will be worth one pound eighty a month mm. to the poorest people. I mean, this is peanuts compared to how much energy bills are going up. Mm. It's very, very little. And of course, it's narrowly focused on those people who can afford to have a car. I mean, it's also, this is the day, the very day when the mayor of London issued a pollution warning and uh, asked us not to burn wood or, and try to avoid using cars. And he puts fuel duty down on that very day. The VAT cut on insulation and heat pumps and solar panels—that's fine. That's a five percent down from five percent cut. He claimed that that was only possible because we've left the EU. That's debatable. So um,
1: debatable—it's nonsense. It, well, yeah. My, it, it will be news to my
2: family in Greece,
1: who took advantage of just such a scheme four years ago. Yeah.
2: Yeah, well, exactly. Um, and it, but that will mostly benefit the well off because you're not thinking of doing insulation or heat pumps or the solar, or solar panels unless you've got a bit of cash to spare to do mm. that with. Ironically, of course, because it does help to cut your heat bills. But people at the very bottom can't afford to do that stuff. And the, uh, you know, it's also clearly good that there's no vat on wind and water turbines, but good luck with getting more turbines out there, given the opposition, the massive opposition that we are seeing in the country to any kind of renewable energy schemes.
0: Um, EU leaders are preparing a windfall tax on energy companies who've profited from rising fuel prices. Now, this would be very popular. The polling shows that. Nobody really likes the energy companies. Even the people who run the energy companies probably feel quite bad about it deep down. Um, why won't Sunak consider something similar?
2: Well, he believes that investment by these companies would suffer and he claims that if they were taxed in this way, they wouldn't then invest in the renew- in renewables, which he wants them to do, and they wouldn't invest in looking into a bit more oil in the North Sea. Now, that is questionable, given how, just how much their profits are growing as a result of the greater demand for their products, thanks to the, uh, the uh, war in Ukraine. But there is a strong view in the Conservative Party that windfall taxes are a bad thing because they're often retrospective, because they create uncertainty for business. Mm. And so this is where you see the real Rishi, Rishi Sunak coming through. Really, you see his concern for a stable environment, as he sees it for business. Never mind that business is hardly <laughs> it's not possible for business in the f- fuel industry to have a stable environment. But he is afraid of annoying, that sector. And it doesn't matter to him that actually the capital spending of these uh, oil oil and companies has fallen massively in recent years. He still believes that they would spend more if they're not subject to a windfall tax. Mm. And given that even the FT, which is normally anti-windfall taxes, is now making noises and saying really it is time for one, given how much mm. these companies are profiting now, that shows you that I think he is out of step now, even with uh, the people representing business,
1: Tory's going to Tory. <laughs> and and can I, sorry, can I just add, because we really must mention it, the people who are completely ignored by this spring statement are the the poorest people on a fixed income um who will really absorb mm. the brunt of this in, incredibly high inflation. So if you're on universal credit, you truly are screwed with the stuff you need to buy to survive going up by about 10% while your, your income is basically not even treading water.
0: Ros, we talked last week about a referendum on net zero being pushed by the usual suspects. Is there anything, whether or not he wants to do it, um, is there something that Sunak can do to sort of undermine those pocketbook arguments? Because that, of course, is the Farage angle, that this is all just terribly expensive and it's hitting ordinary people, you know, for all this sort of green nonsense. Um, could he be smarter about this? Because I remember, you know, we talked about Brexit a bit on the podcast. And one of the, th- the problems there we were saying was that executive governments had missed the chance to make a strong case for the EU – until it was essentially too late. So what can you do to kind of fend off this anti-net-zero campaign?
2: Well, you could make insulation something that the government actually pays for, as opposed to something that you zero just put zero-rate VAT on. The government did try to roll out a scheme a couple of years ago to encourage insulation, and it screwed it up so badly that the, scheme, the whole scheme had to be withdrawn. It was a massive missed opportunity, and if he wanted to revive that and actually say, perhaps to the poorest people, for example, as Alex was saying, you, you can have your home... Uh, or wait, what place where you're living. If you don't own, own your home, you could have this place insulated. That would create jobs. It mm. would be good. Uh, it would help stimulate the economy in that way. But there is nothing like that at all. This This insulation is basically only for the better off and rich. And another thing I didn't see in this statement was anything about public transport. Public transport is something that not exclusively, but when you're talking about buses, poorer people use. Now, the government has, with has basically refused to give local authorities any certainty over how much money they have mm. for bus services. And this might sound kind of boring and trivial and provincial, oh, but man, it really, I'm, I'm
0: well into bus services. It, it, <laughs> no, I think it's really important.
2: It, it is. It it really is because bus services, particularly outside London, are still very expensive, and yet people depend on them. And if they not and if they're not there, and if they're not used people inevitably will try and use a car. And this is the time when they're starting to become more confident about moving back onto public transport. This is the time to say, yeah, we will boost public transport. But he can't even give transport for London the certainty of a decent settlement that tells them how long they've, how much money they've got and for how long. And to me, it's extraordinary. Well, it's not extraordinary in the context of this Conservative government, but it is amazing that transport is perceived solely and the cost of transport is perceived solely through the eyes of car users and it shouldn't yeah. be that way because that is a part of net zero and it's something that mm. deeply affects the poorest.
0: Well so it, it, it does seem like a rather sort of small stakes statement considering um, the big stakes in the economy, um, the sort of post-COVID economy and then being hit again by um, fuel prices related to the invasion of Ukraine and, of course, you know, the impact on us of the economic sanctions um, that we've imposed on Russia.
3: Yes, I think, I mean, you know, this is kind of orthodoxy, of, of treasury orthodoxy, um, and no doubt what Sunak considers to be orthodoxy as well i saw george osborne was crowing on twitter this afternoon about how finally the conservative party rediscovered its commitment to balancing the books and to oh, no <laughs> um, as if which was clearly a sort of uh a, a, i guess a kind of subtweet against the kind of you know the the theresa may interregnum of uh, of of in, in which he was sort of held up as the the bad guy and johnson famously described himself as a brexity heza um referencing heseltine and this notion of things like industrial policy and, and, and the, you know, whatever happened to the levelling up agenda, I'm not sure, you know, where that's gone. I mean, levelling up mm. will just be a, a bad joke um, in six months' time by the time all of these effects come in to here. Meanwhile, there was a kind of, Sort of blue Labour, sort of red Tory, post liberal agenda, which was all about um, supposedly moving right on culture and left on economics. Well, there was no sign of of left on economics uh, in any of this. Um, (laughs) There was something
0: sweetly naive, I do think, about all those people, all those analysts, where they were just going, yeah, 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 they're going to, they're going to do that. They're definitely going to move left on economics, and guess what? They're much more interested in moving right on culture.
3: Yes, well, absolutely. So I think one thing which we've not seen before is a kind of you know the politics of inflation now, um, which you know it hasn't been this kind of inflation for 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 thirty years. But at the same time, I mean, it could end up rising higher still. Uh, and then you're looking at, at um, something that hasn't been seen since Thatcher came to power or, or the, the early days of Thatcher. Mm-hmm. Um, but it will be a very different politics of inflation because the the, the, the crisis of the nineteen seventies was a crisis primarily for for business, for, for the owners of capital, for, for investors, for those people who, who owned property, who owned assets. Um, this will be a, 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 an inflationary crisis for people who simply cannot afford to to, to heat their homes and to, to access the cost of housing and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, there was that rather kind of insulting line from Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, about how he hoped people wouldn't be asking for big pay increases in this context, as if that would be enough to <laughs> to stop people asking for pay increases, but also as if that would be enough to, to prevent inflation rising. I mean, the, the context of the 1970s was utterly different um, when you had um around about half of the, the the labor force was was in trade unions, um were able to to bargain their pay upwards quite quite deliberately and quite forcefully. And now effectively inflation is something which is which is turning people into into victims of circumstance in, in various ways. Um, and although it will look on paper very different from what George Osborne did from twenty ten through to to you know over the first sort of Three to four years of the the coalition government, which was really brutal, the effects could actually be far worse in terms of their effects on people 's quality of life, given that anything which you know a three percent pay increase uh, will actually be uh, 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 you know under current figures a uh, a pay cut of three mm-hmm. percent so um, uh, you know and there are all sorts of areas of the public sector where they've you know teachers and and so on who have really not been benefiting over the last, really, since since, um, since Labour lost power in 2010. Um, all of these sorts of professions will be given these kind of meagre pay increases, which will be real-term pay cuts.
0: Um, and the Tories have a, an age gap problem, you know, when it comes to their support. When you look at sort of what's going on with, um, with pensions, triple-lock pensions, changes to the student loan scheme... Do you get the feeling that this government, this chancellor, is at all interested in signalling to young people um, that they're interested at all?
3: No, not at all. And I think what's odd in a way is you'd think that given Johnson is actually still very politically vulnerable. Um, I mean, it may be that this is Sunak's bid to kind of win over the Conservative Party on the expectation that he thinks that Johnson is going to going to go at some point in the next two years, because Johnson's polling figures have not really recovered from party gates significantly. So it could be that this is a, a sort of, you know, purely Machiavellian set of moves by Sunak to try and signal to the Conservative members and his own backbenchers that he's one of them. But it doesn't seem to me to be in any way trying to rise to the seriousness of of this moment of you know, pandemic, mm. rising inequality, and as you say, um, a, 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 well, not just one generation, but I mean, it's really kind of people under the age of forty, really, who have not had a stake mm. in economic policymaking for a long, long time, um, and I, it's not clear to me how Sunak thinks that this sort of politics is going to. Uh, win an election, of course. Tax cuts, you know, are attractive at times of election, and you know the, there'll be a, an election in, in, in 2024. But um, it's not clear to me how this fends off the various challenges. It, it, it just seems kind of ideologically regressive and deeply unimaginative to me. Leaving aside the the amount of social pain that that, that is going to accompany mm-hmm. it, and that yeah. I think. Post-Brexit, it's not clear what's happened over the last six years to British politics. Things have been really thrown up into the air. And I don't think that this just seems to be a kind of osborne kind of tribute act as much as anything else. Um, Alex, what's the state of the, the Rishi
0: brand? I mean, he, the, he, he published these official pictures of him sort of uh, looking at papers, but wearing a hoodie. So he's serious about the economy. He's also a, a chill hang. There were stories about <laughs> sharing pizza <laughs> with advisers. Um, but he only had one slice, which I think is very, very suspicious. Isn't it? Only the cast of Friends have one slice <laughs> of pizza. I always thought that was uh, unbelievable. So, like, what, what? I mean, he's obviously trying to present himself in a certain way, but also he's doing these policies.
1: And I think going back to what Will was very rightly saying, I think that is my biggest source of disappointment in this budget, that politics aside, there is a big challenge ahead of us. And Sunak actually has a little bit of headroom. You know, because of the current strength of sterling, because of having borrowed less than anticipated Mm. this year, because of all of those factors, there was a chance to front load uh, a response to the huge challenge ahead in a way that would maximally help people. And what he's decided to do politically is to bank that so that he can time the help to help electorally. Um, the Conservative Party. So there there was a clear choice of doing what's right for the country and what's right for the party electorally. And he has firmly chosen to do the latter. And I think if people begin to cotton on to that, I think this spring statement has the potential to unravel in a huge way.
2: A few, A few months ago, there was a bit of a chat in some academic circles, I think, about whether Whether the austerity narrative had come to an end with COVID, whether we now felt post-pandemic that we'd seen what the state was capable of doing and whether people would be happy to return Mm. to to, to an austerity government. Now, whether people are happy to return to it is one question, but what is clear is that Sunak himself is a... And a continuity, austerity, Chancellor.
0: Yeah. It's interesting isn't it, that you've got David Cameron um, out there volunteering at, at food banks, you know, trying to at least signal he's making amends. <laughs> and George Osborne's George, George, George out there going, yes, <laughs> austerity. Um, Alex, finally, you've heard from sources that the framing, uh, a very common framing of a battle between a, a prudent number 11 and a spendy number 10 – actually helps both camps appeal to different Mm backbenchers, different constituencies. Does that mean that the framing is untrue or is it true and also politically helpful to both of them?
1: The framing is true but also fed and amplified and exaggerated because it is helpful to both camps. And it goes precisely to what both Ros and Will were talking about. If you frame this as a difficult choices thing, mm-hmm. as a, you know, if you ignore modern monetary theory, if you ignore Keynesian economics, if you ignore all these things and frame it as two bits of, of this party trying mm. to... Convince each other to spend or not to spend. Then you're in austerity territory. You're in the territory that implies the, that the pie is of a certain size, and it's terribly difficult to decide yes, what yes. what size slice to give to each segment when that's not true, because you can grow yourself out of trouble. And the biggest news today is actually that growth forecast for this year, which was meant to be, I think, something like 62 something percent has been downgraded to 3.8 percent and if you dig under that figure you find that the main constraining factor is that companies can't hire at the moment labor supplies being choked what was in this spring statement about labor supply about easing labor supply troubles for companies so that the economy can grow diddly fucking squat
0: Next, a question from our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. If you'd like to send us one, search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast and sign up. This week's question comes from Tom. It's possible that Labour will get into government at the next election. How should it deal with an inevitable desire amongst progressives for retribution on the Conservative Party and politicians? It's not unreasonable for Remainers, progressives, etc. to feel aggrieved at what appears to be corruption and illegality committed by those in government at the moment and to seek accountability. If Labour's criticism of their opponents is that it's one rule for them and another for everyone else, the implied promise is that they would do something about that. But how far should that go? Ros, there's kind of the, the 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 rattle of the tumbril in the mm. background of this question.
2: <laughs> I sympathise. I sympathise with the questioner.
0: I suppose maybe there's an echo of the criticism of, um, say, uh, Obama, uh, that when he came into office after the financial crisis, he didn't go after um, people on Wall Street who were responsible for the crisis. But there, there was something you could go after them for. Who'd, I'm not sure who Tom has in mind here. Is there room for some kind of? Uh, Um, punishment. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I'm not sure that there is, to be honest. Um, I I can understand the desire for retribution. Uh, I think the most we can do, practically speaking, is, for example, to name and shame the recipients of the millions, billions wasted on PPE. But in terms of any kind of retribution, I think I think Keir Starmer, if it is Keir Starmer, uh, and he is in power, I think his focus is going to, his time is going to be taken up with wholesale reform. And hopefully, that reform will mm. indicate that they are a different kind of government. And the Tories, if they are voted out, will have acquired the reputation of being a sleazy, crony-led party which has rightly been kicked out of office. And it will be awful, it will continue to be awful to see the people who profited off the back of uh, corrupt procurement and, uh, and contracts in still enjoying the spoils of their lack of labour. But that is sadly, you know, it's it's in the past well, and you have
0: of, to move on. Yeah, because a lot of that stuff is it's, it's not criminality. No. So therefore reform mm. is far more important, yeah. presumably, and achievable to stop this happening in future. And electorally, electorally
1: attractive. Yeah. I mean, look, I am uh, all for revenge. I really, I, you know, if I had my way, Johnson would be marched down a cobbled street naked like Circe while Rachel Reeves l- rang a bell behind him going, shame, shame, shame. But the biggest punishment that the British public can meet On This uh, uh, party is to kick them out of power and leave them out of power to cut off that constant supply of blood to the leeches that feed off the state. And in my mind. Uh, Running a campaign that concentrates on backwards looking things and on sort of, you know, uh, uh, going backwards and and dragging all those who profited to court successfully or unsuccessfully is electorally unattractive. It makes the party look like it's backward looking, like it doesn't have a, a plan going forward. Much more attractive to say we will clean up the state going forward. We will put in processes that mean this can't happen again.
0: Yeah, generally, I'm not a retribution guy. I suppose I always put more hope in, 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 in ensuring these things don't happen again, for example, you know, that I'm concerned about various uh, your war crime deniers working in British universities or um, hosting shows on the LBC. And, you know, mm. but, but I think it's like, well, yeah, sure, maybe you can try and get one of those fired. Better, perhaps, is to just go, well, how did this happen? What, what judgments are you making? Mm.
3: Yeah, I was actually just thinking about precedents for this sort of thing. And uh, one slightly un, uh, not quite what I think the, the, the question I was, was getting at was when um, George W. Bush was elected president in 2000, Someone said uh, he said well, the first thing I do when I get in that Oval Office is to give it a damn good scrubbing, which was a, a reference to uh, what had gone on uh, in the in the Oval Office under his predecessor Bill Clinton. Um, and so there is a sort of you know that sense of there being a, a kind of moral um, a, a kind of moment of renewal. That's um, rather a kind of uh, tawdry um, version of it. But um, <laughs> I mean, there was uh, you know there were things like the the ethical foreign policy that Robin Cook promised in in 1997, which of course. Uh, fell apart in in all sorts of ways after September 11th, um, but um, Labour, New Labour, would be a, an example not of something that was seeking retribution, but clearly um, there's been a lot of discussion of the role of sleaze in the downfall of the major government in the in the mid 90s, um, and so there are some kind of analogies there. And from the, the the polling experts that I that I follow on Twitter and so on, um, many would seem to be kind of surmising at the moment that. That some kind of fairly sort of serious um, and long-lasting damage has been done to the Conservative Party um, and to Boris Johnson over the course of the you know the the, the winter that is now uh, mercifully ending um, with Partygate and so on. Um, and the other thing which is to think about is, of course, what what are the kind of governance reforms and the constitutional reforms that might might um, prevent. Kind of the resurgence of of pork barrel politics in the future, uh, because I mean, there's also, we all we could talk endlessly about the versions of of the kind of low level corruption that has has gone on um, under under Johnson and the the favors and the, the the sale of peerages and the you know the use of, of the town's fund in order to, to kind of fight local election battles and this sort of thing. Um, the question is, what would you introduce to prevent that sort of thing happening? Um, and uh, you know, that's I, I think I get mm. more kind of progressive. Set of questions.
0: So, yeah, sorry, Tom. We're not going to be uh, parading them down the street. But we get it. We get it. Next up, Boris Johnson set Twitter on fire by claiming during the Conservative Spring Conference that Ukraine's struggle against Russia was similar to Brexit. It's the instinct of the people of this country, like the people of Ukraine, to choose freedom every time, he said, when the British people voted for Brexit in such large, large numbers. I don't believe it was because they were remotely hostile to foreigners. is the thought. It's because they wanted to be free to do things differently and for this country to be able to run itself. Uh, former Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko responded, uh, from war torn Ukraine, how many Britons died because of Brexit? How many houses were destroyed because of Brexit? Ros, a source close to Johnson claimed that it looked better on paper than it sounded when he said it with his big flapping mouth. Um, <laughs> what, what, I mean, he hasn't apologised himself. Um, What was he thinking?
2: Yeah, it's pretty odious, isn't it? But I mean, it it is entirely consistent with the Johnson worldview, which is that he is a war leader and he tries to seize that mantle whenever he can. And in this instance, it was massively inappropriate and crass. But he sees himself as a Churchill and he sees himself as having won a war in Brexit. He was always declaring war on COVID. Mm. Um, This is yet another opportunity to wade into a warlike narrative, which is an area in which he feels very comfortable. You know, when when his defenders say it looked better on paper, well, yeah, it always does with Johnson because he's used to writing ridiculous newspaper columns. And he has yet to Realise that the kind of uh, pathetic rhetoric which I- he was accustomed to using when he was writing for the daily telegraph and the spectator is just not appropriate when you are prime minister but historic
0: i mean historically of course it's it's crass to compare something like brexit to a war but when there's an actual war happening yeah um, it's mind-boggling um now I wonder the salience of Europe as an issue is is now just thirteen uh, percent compared with seventy two percent in twenty nineteen. Do you think he is trying to, with with comment like that, sort of bring back the Leave Remain divide, which, short of other ideas, seems to be perhaps a, a fruitful. Um, driver of votes to the Tories.
2: Yeah, I think he's running short of ideas, to be honest, because his standing has not improved in the polls, as Will pointed out, despite his efforts to identify himself with Ukraine. He has a cost of living crisis, as we have just discussed at length to deal with. So he's turning back to the old tunes to see if they still work. And there was a poll, an Ipsos, I think, in January that said that 70% of Britain still had strong or very strong uh, identification with either leave or remain. And I think he's trying to go with that. The you know, corollary of that, of course, is that they don't strongly identify with Conservatives or Labour. And he he's yeah, he's returning to the old playbook to see if it still works.
0: Um, EU leaders have criticized Johnson's comments, obviously. Uh, he hasn't been invited to an EU Commission meeting with Joe Biden on Thursday. Um, is a friendly relationship with Europe, which obviously we would like I mean we'd like a very friendly intimate relationship with Europe but I think everybody thinks you know we need to be getting on better is that just impossible while Johnson is in charge yeah, like probably. that there is something about him as a person which to be honest European leaders have given up on
2: certainly when it comes to his relationship with Macron um, I think that's irretrievably broken down Cron has no time at all for Johnson. Not sure yet about uh, Olaf Scholz and how he's going to get on with him, but I would not imagine that it's that much better. Then, of course, you have the fact that the Northern Ireland Protocol is still up in the air and all the uncertainty and distrust that that sows. But it is useful for Johnson to continue to draw a line between himself and Europe and the fact is that the EU can get done, more done without him hobbling them. I mean, if you think even about the visa-free settlement for Ukrainians in the last couple of weeks, that would probably have been held up, vetoed, made much more difficult, mm, mm. sought an exemption for whatever, by the if the UK had still been a part of the EU. We would be slowing them down. And as I say, it is politically useful for Johnson to continue to draw lines and point out how different life in Britain is because we are not in the EU the, any longer. The
1: issue is, I think, that it's not just uh, to do with Europe. That I think it's to do with international relations in general. It's to do with Britain's foreign policy. Because ultimately, you want other countries to think that we can do business with mm. this country um and for that to to be the case there are three sort of preconditions they need they need to think that our behavior is predictable they need to think that our behavior is rational and they need to trust us they, so honesty is the third element and i think on all those three tests Johnson fails really quite miserable in, miserably internationally at the moment. And that makes it very difficult for the UK to forge its way forward internationally, not just with the EU, with anyone.
0: Well, on Ukraine, Britain led the way in, in sending military aid, um, mm. but not when it came to penalising oligarchs or helping um, refugees. And Johnson does it to have got a lot of sort of political credit for the military side of things. Do you think this is why he is apparently desperate to visit Ukraine? And I don't know what he would do there. I don't think they're crying out for Uh, him to go.
1: They have death, war and famine. So I suppose there'd be a terrifying symmetry in inflicting on them the political pestilence that is Boris Johnson. But uh, the truth is that The way you measure the the response, the way to measure bravery, essentially, in your response to what Russia is doing, is to see the distance that you had to move on those things. Mm. Now, you know, supplying arms is not a far distance for the UK to move. The
0: UK supplies arms to a lot of people.
1: (laughs) But yes, but for Germany to reverse its post-war policies and say, we will supply arms, we will, you know, for, uh, for that to happen, it's a big distance to travel. And I think that must be commensurate to the to the credit that they get. Now, what would have been politically difficult for Johnson, what would have been politically difficult, would have been to show a genuinely open and generous response to the refugee crisis, which he hasn't done. What would be politically difficult for him would be to genuinely target the oligarchs that effectively fund Mm -hmm. his party, which he hasn't done. So he's been very forthcoming on the low-hanging fruit, while Europe has moved a really great distance on some stuff that was difficult for them. It was existentially difficult for them, but they've done it. Yeah, that's always the measure of a politician, yeah. isn't it? Like what, what, yeah. what is difficult? Um, well,
0: uh, on Partygate, which we, uh, we talked of nothing else not so long ago, the Met have begun interviewing witnesses, but allies of Johnson are, are confident that he won't be penalised. It's unlikely Sue Gray will report before the May elections. Obviously, uh, the letters have stopped flying into the 1922 committee. Um, I mean, it's hard to say how long the war in Ukraine is going to go on and and its effect um, on yeah. on British politics. How how sort of vulnerable do you think Johnson is to the results of the May council elections, just in their own right, apart from any? Of these sort of scandal investigations He's, well, I, I, that's yeah, the political I it'll, judgment
3: it'll be a reminder of something that seemed kind of nakedly obvious um in in january which was that he was finished i mean it seemed that that for a while that that he had no no future at all mm. and um ukraine obviously changed the topic um so significantly that people kind of forgot about that um and of course it will be a reminder of something that has not gone away in terms of domestic politics i mean what johnson is very very clever at, um, and it's, I guess, because he's a, a, a sort of newspaper man through and through, is that he knows that, you know, deferring something by two weeks or three weeks is often enough to kind of, you know, wait for other events to come along. Um, and, yes, uh, Ukraine, no doubt he will be wanting to use that in every possible way in order to carry on um, performing that kind of distraction. And um, I don't think that 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 anything immediately is going to come along and suddenly pre- present serious problems for him. But at the same time, I also think that he's rehabilitating himself in any way either. So there'll be a kind mm-hmm. of a that, you know, the, the Conservative Party will have to sort of work that out. I mean, I think um, on the topic of Ukraine, I know, with, I mean, there is. Um, an ideology that Oliver Dowden, uh, the Conservative Party chair, keeps trying to kind of develop, which is a kind of a, I guess, what you could call a kind of Atlanticist ideology. I mean, he gave that that speech to the Heritage Institute in Washington D.C. about the sort of threat of woke values to the West and this sort of thing, uh, and also made those extraordinary comments about the privet hedges of freedom at that at that uh, Conservative conference. And I think that it'd be interesting to see what happens there in terms of whether Johnson might kind of adopt aspects of that of that ideology in order to try to present himself as something that is somehow sort of above the fray I mean in some ways someone who was did this very aggressively was someone like Theresa May in some ways you know sort of offering herself as a kind of a a securocrat in a way as sort of someone who was um, going to keep people safe was going to assert national interests and the problem is that Johnson people don't take Johnson very seriously. He's not, he, he doesn't seem to take himself seriously. So offering a kind of form of statesman-like uh, authority where one is suddenly kind of, you know, the values of the West are at stake, which is what Dowden seems to think uh, the Conservative Party now needs to kind of trot out that argument. Um, you know, it's available. And Johnson, I don't think, has yet really tried to kind of play that card very, very strongly because I think that he seems to be having too much fun the whole time. And, and the world doesn't seem very fun at the moment. Um, You were saying earlier that that,
0: that Sleaze is sort of going to continue to dog him rather than perhaps be a killer blow. But Labour has a consistent poll lead, yet can't seem to get above 40%. What do you think they need to do now to lock in their strength rather than the government's um, abundant and persistent weaknesses? (laughs)
3: Well, I, I, you know, it's not clear at the moment. I mean, I think so. Obviously, they they, they suffer a kind of perennial problem, which is that they don't really show much hope in in Scotland. And this is something which means that anything that you know, since since Labour lost power in twenty ten, the possibilities for polling have been uh, entirely different from what was possible under under Blair and Brown. Um, you know, I don't think that many people could really identify a Labour policy. Um, I think that was partly still to kind of get away from the Corbyn brand, because Corbyn, you know, you read those manifestos in twenty seventeen and twenty nineteen, and they, they were kind of sort of like shopping lists of things that would be kind of wonderful to do. To the point where, um, I mean, obviously not everyone agreed with all of them, but they were, they did have, they were not short of ideas and policies. And there was this sense in which people stopped taking them seriously. People stopped believing that they were that they were possible because they just sort of seemed to have, just have endless policies. And I think that what, what Starmer has done is to pull so far back from that, in addition to the other aspects of trying to sort of decarbonize the party in relation to things like defence and national identity and so on. But I think that um, Labour has ended up becoming kind of rather timid on a lot of policies. Mm. Um, you know, New Labour in 1997... Was extremely vocal about its New Deal, as it was as it was called before we had green New Deals and sorts of other New Deals. The, the New Deal originally was a was a policy to tackle long term youth unemployment, funded um, uh, rather relevantly by a, a windfall tax on um, uh, privatised utilities. Um, and and I think that that kind of move, where effectively you identify an aspect of society or the economy in which Millions of people have a stake. You know, I think Labour has real opportunities now to 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 to, to innovate in relation to to pick particular things like labour market policy, and of course, you know, actually Rachel Reeves's policy on 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 climate and environment are actually hugely ambitious. They haven't really been very vocal as to as to how expansive. Uh, the spending commitments are in relation to decarbonisation and the economy, and I think again because they're they're afraid of looking like that this is kind of McDonald all over again, um, and, yeah, yeah. and they haven't really been as, as as vocal about that. And I think you know young people and and the very large numbers of people who care deeply about climate and environment, um, I think you know should should hear more about that.
0: Before we go, let's take a quick look at some stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Alex, kick us off.
1: Okay, so uh, Will and Kate's uh, Caribbean tour. Um, The visit itself is not going under the radar. What's going under the radar is just how badly it's going. You know, they had to cancel bits of it because there were protests. They did some incredibly cack-handed press Events like at a a cocoa factory when the protests are actually about cocoa being workers. They did this photo opportunity of letting people touch them through a chain link fence. I mean, I don't know what they're thinking about. And and in this country, this is being reported as follows. This is from the Daily Mail. Kate Middleton stands in a custom Roxanda dress as she arrives in Jamaica. Catherine looks truly stunning. Most Jamaicans will be delighted. They have come. Actually, they're not. Look at the fucking polling. Jamaica is about to have a referendum on going Republican. And all the signs are that it will. So stop reporting the royal visit as if it's some kind of red carpet event and start reporting the actual facts around the visit. It's like that old joke. Kate Middleton went to the Caribbean. Jamaica?
2: Yes.
0: (laughs) It was an official visit.
2: Um, Roz? (laughs) Oh, I'm just going to bang on briefly about onshore wind. I don't know if you remember, but at uh, the um, Oh God, What Now event a couple of weeks ago, I uh, talked about how Britain was world leader in offshore wind and uh, how sad it was that we weren't, uh, we were making it so difficult to have uh, for people to build solar farms. But um, yeah, no, offshore and onshore wind, not the same thing at all. And the fact is that since 2015, when the government introduced a, pair, a change in the law, it there have been hardly any onshore wind schemes approved just 11 of them which is 1.5% of the number that were approved in the last in the last in the 15 years before that basically nine out of 10 councils don't even allow onshore wind and there has been discussion in the cabinet apparently about trying to encourage perhaps even force councils to do more of this, given the light of the energy crisis that we're seeing. And they can't even agree on what to do and whether to do about that because it's such a toxic, NIMBY-ish subject. But, yeah. And until we kind of get over ourselves on this and realise that we're going to have to have more wind turbines and more solar farms if we're going to be independent uh, of, of uh, Russian gas and have net zero, we're not going to make any progress at well, I all. I also thought
0: NIMBYs will kill us all.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's yet another example, as we were saying earlier, of, of policy being dictated by elderly homeowners. Uh,
0: I just want to, a quick one, um, I wrote a piece recently about the anti-Anti-Putin, uh, the crazy world of those people um, and where there were people that called themselves left and people that called themselves right and they all seemed to converge in the same place. And rather annoyingly for me, uh, after the piece appeared, um, some people um, launched a magazine called Compact Unfortunately, it has the same name as a German far-right magazine, um, but not inaptly. Um, and it's just full, <laughs> it's full of anti-anti-Putin stuff. It's full of sort of, you know, feminists who like the patriarchy, post-leftists who just sound like right-wing people and uh, traditionalist Catholics. And if you just These want... These are
1: a few of my favourite things.
0: If you want the perfect crystallisation of my argument that the left-right spectrum is just... Completely inadequate to explain the state of political punditry at the moment. This is the one. It's absolute mayhem. They seem to hate liberalism while saying that what they really want is, and there's a list of values that basically describes liberalism. liberalism. Um, so check it out. Um, it's its a lot of fun. No, don't. And of course it has mysterious funders.
3: As, no, don't check it, don't it out. Don't they all? Don't check it out. Um, Will, well, I mean, the, the, this is a story which I'm, I'm sure um, many of your listeners um, are familiar with, but it's it's still one of these things that gets kind of buried under um, the the news from from Ukraine and the news from from Westminster, which is these uh, details of the terrifying temperatures at, at, the, at the Arctic that were recorded recently. Which was, you know, they say the, the scientists are astounded to discover that it's forty degrees hotter at Antarctica. Uh, than normal at this time, of years and thirty degrees hotter at the Arctic than uh, at normal at uh, this time as it is normally. I mean, this is just sort of terrifying in its own right. And I'm not someone who, who claims to understand enough about climate in order to be able to speculate to exactly kind of you know how something on this scale could be happening. I do. I have read that you know this is creating the the fear that the shift towards a kind of complete climate breakdown is far more advanced than scientists previously thought. And that's obviously a a terrifying thought. But I mean, one of the things which I think is extraordinary at the moment, and I think, I guess, could be something that we will increasingly just get used to living with for a while, is how the whole nature of climate and of energy now sort of it kind of impacts upon our politics and impacts upon our media on kind of multiple levels all at once, because we have the, the geopolitics of of energy, the kind of household economics of, of energy uh, impacting upon us and, and our domestic politics at the moment and, and really is sort of front and centre in what happens in Westminster. But then you have this kind of whole kind of macro ecology of temperatures and of climate that is hovering there in the background. And, and I think that there's a terrifying drama um, of, of our politics at the moment is that that sort of news item can can kind of be sort of dropped in amongst everything else, and of course it gets picked up by the likes of George Monbiot and others and, and written about. But it, but it but it's mm. on a scale um, that really no one quite knows what to say about or, or what to make of. Mm. And meanwhile, these other political and economic questions are where we focus our attention instead. So in many ways, it's over the radar rather than <laughs> under the radar. Yeah, I suppose that's right.
0: And that's the show. Thanks to Roz. Thank you. Alex? Thank you. And our guest Will Davis? Thank you. Stay tuned for a preview of our extra bit exclusively for Patreons after our theme song Demonism as a Monster by Corner Shop and a thanks to our latest backers.
1: Huge thanks to Joe Vernon, Philip Henderson, Alan Garyuk, Stubbings Andy, Richard Murphy, Simon Coversy, Celeste Morton, Paul Harris and Ruth Albury.
0: And thanks for me to Arthur Miles, Sophie Smith, Helen Reid, Phil Corfan, James, Anthony Allen, Sam Raby and Doug Lynn. See you next time. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex
3: Andreu and Rose Taylor. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn, the producers of Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sopranovich. Group editor is
0: Andrew Harrison, lead producer Jacob Jarvis, and, oh God, what now is a Podmasters production. In the extra bit this week, Labour peer Lord Young was barred from contributing to a debate after he allegedly dozed off during it. The 79-year-old peer insisted that he had actually been leaning into the speakers embedded in the benches so that he could hear better. He was concentrating too much. Inspired (laughs) by this... Today we're asking the panel, what's the biggest thing you've ever slept through, Um, Roz?
2: Well, I love election nights. As I may have mentioned before, they are really exciting. They are thrilling. I just I just love I love voting, you know, the whole thing. But unfortunately, there was a uh, slightly major election around 2008. You may recall it. Uh, Barack Obama was elected as president of the United States. And um, I was all set to I was determined to sit up as late as I possibly could, because of course, it's, it's with a US election, you basically have to sit through the whole night. Uh, I was a few months pregnant at the time time not very pregnant mm-hmm. but quite pregnant but a bit a bit tired um, excuses <laughs> and, we have and that was a
0: trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast if you'd like a little bit more oh god what now every week without ads and a day early then you can sign up to back us on patreon for as little as two pounds a month you'll also get our weekly mini cast oh god what else every monday morning exclusive to backers. your support keeps us going thank you for listening and see you next week